Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. On this program, we always focus on key issues impacting businesses around the globe and always have the chance to bring in our local ELA lawyers to give the conversation a clear understanding of the topic at hand. Today's subject is focused on the higher education sector and how online learning has significantly changed since the spread of the pandemic. Many higher education institutions are met with demands to shift from being in the classroom to adopting virtual solutions for faculty, staff, and students. Today's panel will discuss how educational facilities can adapt to a changing e-learning environment while maintaining compliance in the legal and employment sectors, as well as we're going to cover important topics such as Title IX considerations, including remote investigations and hearings, final rule implementation updates, and gender-based scholarships. Moderating today's discussion is Jose Oliveri, co-managing partner at Michael Best and Friedrich in Wisconsin, who will introduce our guest panelists and move us through the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. I guess, first of all, I want to say welcome to the program. We have a great group of panelists with us today. And the uh, panelists are Jeffrey Peterson from uh, Michael Best, my partner, Michael Best, who's in Wisconsin. Sam Sneed, who is a director at ESNA in Hawaii. Kathleen or Kathy Hen, who's an associate general counsel at TCS Education System in Illinois. And Derek Ishikawa, who is with uh, Hirschfeld and Kramer in California. The topics that we're going to talk about today are topics that some of them have developed during this period of time after the pandemic started. All of them are topics where there's been some exacerbation of the issue because of the pandemic. But again, a couple of the issues have just been sort of thrown at us in higher ed. During the pandemic, we've had to adjust to these issues. So copyright issues, for example, copyright issues have existed forever. But with everything going online, with so much curriculum online, we have new issues and we have to have, I think, a real concentrated effort to make sure we're complying with those laws. Information security. We've always had information security issues to be concerned about. But today, where everybody is accessing through so many different platforms, so many different mechanisms to get the services from higher education, whether it's our students, our staff, our faculty, a lot of people using the online platforms, therefore, a number of more issues have arisen. Title IX. Now, Title IX is something that was sort of thrown at us during the pandemic, and we've had to adjust. We've had to see how we can apply the new rule to this online environment that we're in, and we'll talk about that. And then we have a number of other sort of requirements or, or, or issues that have arisen, whether it's during this period of time, whether it's uh, testing requirements, standardized testing requirements being dropped, some training guidance that we've gotten, direction that we've gotten in terms of prohibiting certain kinds of training, and obviously the remote and uh, work policy uh, work that we're doing. Again, a number of these issues are issues that will have impacted us primarily during this period of time, but again, not all driven because of the pandemic. So I'm going to ask uh, Jeff Peterson, who's going to talk about the copyright issues to lead us in the discussion about copyright issues. Please have in mind, if you've got questions, submit them as we're going along. The idea is to try to see if we can answer those questions as we go along in the presentation. So please have that in mind as you go along. Jeff? Thanks, Jose. Welcome all. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit today about copyright issues with distant learning. As, as Jose mentioned already, you know, our faculty and staff at educational institutions have been dealing with copyright issues and learning for a very long time. But the majority of the uh, presentations and learning they've been doing 
have primarily been in class, so in a classroom setting, an in-person setting. And while uh, remote learning has been around for a while, the sheer volume of remote learning uh, that's going on in this COVID environment, you know, obviously has increased substantially. And so a lot of instructors or faculty members who aren't necessarily used to operating in that environment, you know, understanding of how uh, that the copyright laws can affect their types of presentations and how they're conducting class virtually is important to keep in mind. So I thought I'd start off with some of the basics of copyright issues, which is kind of, you know, describing the types of works that you can have. So if you have original works, essentially works that are created originally by your faculty, your staff members, or the institution where you're not using other people's music or images, et cetera, you know, uh, usually if that's created by an employee, that's going to be owned by the university, and you can use that however you want to use that and how you're conducting your online learning and how you disseminate that. You don't have other guidelines that you have to follow when you are the owner of the work. The same exists if you're using any text, images, sound, et cetera, that's in the public domain. So it's rights that have essentially now been dedicated to the public because it's they've now either, the copyright holders either forfeited or expressly waived their rights or the copyright protection has simply just lapsed. In the United States, pretty much any work before 1924 has now entered into the public domain. Other items may have entered into the public domain versus various peculiarities of the copyright system. If, you, if you're aware that it's in the public domain, you'd be free to incorporate that work, say, in a PowerPoint, et cetera, as you're teaching your, your faculty online. But if it's only if it's original work, you know, it's, it's not somebody else's copyright work, it's a public domain work, can you really have no guidelines? You can simply do kind of whatever you want to do with respect to using that work as part of your online instruction. If it doesn't fall within that category, there's a fair amount of work out there that's just freely usable under a permissive license for people to use. And so here we're not operating in sort of a, a fair use or other exclusions out of copyright protection, which we'll talk a little bit about in a bit. Here we're actually having a license, i.e. it is copyrighted, it's a copyrighted image, but if you go to certain websites, you can find copyrighted images that are usable under a Creative Commons or other public use license. And so you may be able to simply go to those types of websites, make sure that you have that license, cut and paste that image and include it in your, your faculty type uh, online materials, and you'll have a license to use that without having to pay somebody a royalty. Even when you have that type of freely permissive license to use images or Creative Commons music, oftentimes there's different versions of those Creative Commons license where the user say may want attribution. So you may still have an obligation, even though you can use it without paying a royalty, you may need to have an attribution line somewhere in your presentation or other um, um, restrictions that may apply. Some restrict those commercial uh, or, or Creative Commons licenses for non-commercial uses, such as educational uses. But they may have other restrictions where they don't allow it, or they may not allow you to redistribute it, but just use it for that one class. And so the important thing to keep, keep in mind there is just because it's a permissive license or a Creative Commons license does not necessarily mean you can use that for any purpose. There may be some purposes or obligations, such as attribution, that you're need, going to need to follow as you move through and use that as part of your online and distance learning if you're gonna use that type of material. 
the next issues, which are, you're probably familiar with, is the, the, the classic fair use exemption. So under existing copyright law, certain types of copying, the act of copying, so I'm going to make a copy of somebody else's work, and I'm going to use that without getting a license. The law allows for certain aspects of that, as long as it's fair use. And the fair use determination is not so much of a bright line rule, it's the examination of four critical characteristics when you look at how you're using the work. It's the purpose and character of your use. And so educational uses, especially non-commercial educational uses, are generally highlighted as that, that in a favor of fair use. You're not using this necessarily to generate revenue. It's part of a teaching act. The nature of the copyrighted work. So what type of work are you talking about? If it's a textbook and the whole point of the work is to sell the book to educators, you know, that's different than, than maybe using, you know, 30 seconds out of some sort of, you know, Seinfeld episode or 30 seconds out of, uh, you know, a movie on an Agatha Christie novel that's related to the teaching of what type of work you're using in relation to the work that you're using for it. The amount and substantiality of the portion taking. Are you trying to simply copy a whole course packet or copy a whole textbook and disseminate it online? Or are you taking a figure out of a textbook? Or are you taking a clip out of a, out of a movie or a recorded play for a teaching act? Uh, versus the entirety of the work. And the last aspect is the effect of the use on the potential market, which would really be, are you robbing the copy holder, essentially, of the commercial value of this market? If I'm in the market of selling copyrighted course packs and course materials and textbooks, and you're kind of taking the whole thing or a substantial portion of it, even though it's a teaching purpose, you know, you really should have just bought that material from me. That alone, the teaching purpose, when looking at all the other factors, doesn't necessarily give you a fair use. And institutions are usually pretty used to, by this point, working under kind of what a fair use is in an in-class setting. They've been doing that for decades. And so there's nothing really new here other than keep your mind on that when you're including somebody else's work in your, in your uh, online learning. To make it a little bit easier for distance learning, since, since institutions are so used to doing, measuring those fair use exceptions, and because they are a little muddy, the TEACH Act was put into place in 2002, so it's been around for a while. And this has really gave sort of more explicit exemptions for distance learning. It really provided more guidance to these fair use exemptions, really, to make it more clear that if you follow these different guidelines, you would, in fact, be considering a fair use. So you're allowed to do that without it being an infringement if you're using some of these types of aspects. So one of the first aspects you need to keep in mind is that work has to be lawfully acquired. So for instance, I want to show a clip from the most recent uh, Murder on the Orient Express movie as my English class is going to be doing something on the novels of Agatha Christie. I can't go and download the movie off some pirate site online or pull a clip off YouTube of the same clip I want to show. I need to lawfully acquire that work which would be buying a licensed version of that work or a licensed version of a picture. And then you could begin to there to kind of use it as part of your studies in an appropriate manner. The second thing is you have to limit the amount of work access. You know, are, is it the entirety of the work or is it just a portion of the work? You can perform as much as you want of a non-dramatic literary or musical work, say a poem and a song, but a play or an opera or a movie you know, that, again, playing the entirety of the work may be a problem. But you could 
necessarily you could put up an image for the entirety of the lesson plan. The other thing you have to do is you have to limit access to those works really to the students enrolled in the class. And so, for instance, if you're going to be using this type of copyrighted material, you'd have to present it in a way, quite frankly, similar that we're doing today. You register for it, you get online to this educational process, and you know, it, you're just going to get it as part of this educational process. We're not necessarily posting the whole thing up on YouTube for anybody to download. If that's what you're doing and you're using other people's copyrighted works, the Teach Act may not you know, be there for you to say that's a permissive use. You have to limit access to that copyrighted work only for the time needed to complete the class session or course. And so it's not an unlimited, you know, you're going to post this up in the next five, 10 years. You can see it as much as you'd like. That, that's going to be limited to those students for a limited period of time for them to do it. You have to have policies in place, both for your instructors, organizations, students, and staff, that there are copyright laws and that you follow them. They put into the statute that they want the institutions to have these policies, let students know, hey, there's copyrighted material in this course material, don't download it, don't share it, let your faculty be aware of your copyright policies. Most institutions already have these copyright policies in place. There's probably nothing else you need to do other than make sure with more students doing the online approach that these students are aware of the, of the copyright policies as well. You also have to work on preventing further copying and redistribution of the copyrighted works. Usually that means is they simply just can't download the material. So if you are providing sound clips, movie clips, et cetera, or it's embedded into your online presentations, you know, they can see that, they can maybe view it as much as they like, they can view it in a live capacity or, you know, log in during a certain time period to see it, but they can't simply just download the copyrighted work and take it. You can't post up all this textbook material and they can just download it and have that forever. That's going to get you outside of the sort of safe harbor under the Teach Act. The, the last part is they really don't want you interfering with copy protection mechanisms. So if there is sort of embedded things on what you can and cannot do, with the items, you can't kind of strip that copy protection off of a work or strip the copyright notice off of a work and then send it out there. If that's part of the work that you're using, you need to continue to kind of have that mechanism there as you're moving forward. Those are instances where you know you're using a copyrighted work and you don't have a license, but you're relying on the T-check or the fair use saying that even though I don't have a license to this, it's copyrighted by somebody else, I'm having a permitted uses. That's a little bit different than permitted use of under license. Here, you look to see what license you have to use the materials, and you can go ahead and use them under the license, or you can purchase licenses that give you the rights. Same with under the copyright clearinghouse. The last piece is sort of pro-music license. Some institutions do have music licenses, so they can actually put on, say, concert performances, non-educational concert performances, for the student body or uh, concert performances by their choral groups, et cetera. You need to make sure that your current music licenses allow you to do those performances online. And so I won't get into the details of that, but not all existing institutions have the appropriate lights to do that right now. And so even though you say, hey, I've got an AFCAP, a BMI license, you have to kind of make sure it's compliant with how you're moving forward. I think I kind of chewed up all my time, so I'm gonna, <laughs> Send it back to Jose. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff. And I think what I'll do is I'll move uh, on to our next segment. And uh, Sam uh, Sneed is going to help us with uh, security issues 
And she's also going to throw in some export control information, which I think is another issue that uh, has, I think has been increased in its relevance because of all the online work that's being done. Sam? Hi, thanks, Jose. So I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about the information security considerations that higher ed will have an increased focus on as we move to a remote working environment. As both Jose and Jeff have mentioned, these aren't necessarily new considerations, but the importance has increased basically as we move so much of what we do online and as we're not able to really oversee these issues in person as easily. So the first thing to understand is that the number of exploits, so these are the bad actors doing bad things to your systems are on the rise. So the fact that a good portion of the country has moved to online work very, very quickly has not gone unnoticed by the bad actors. So between, I believe, March and April of this year, the FBI IC3, which is the Internet Crime Complaint Center, has seen a fourfold increase in the number of daily complaints that they receive. And so these are reports that people actually make to the FBI. This does not necessarily represent all of the exploits that are out there, but just to give you some idea, they went from about 1,000 complaints a day pre-lockdown to about between three to 4,000 complaints a day once a lot of the country started going into lockdown. And so one of the exploits that I think has been covered pretty well in the media is what has become known as Zoom bombing. So if you're familiar with the teleconferencing platform Zoom, Zoom bombing happened quite a bit earlier in the year when a lot of people were moving to this video conferencing platform without kind of checking about the security measures that they could put in place. And so you'd be holding a meeting and suddenly somebody uninvited would show up, do something obscene and log out. Obviously, this is problematic. We don't want that to happen to interrupt our classes or whatever work we are doing. And if you are discussing things that are confidential, that poses another big issue. There are other platforms out there. They have not had as much media attention. But what was interesting about this particular exploit is that a lot of it was preventable. Since the high-profile Zoom bombs have take, were taking place and kind of covered in the media, Zoom actually as a platform has done a lot to increase its security features, but even from the beginning, simple measures like using passwords to secure your meetings were available. So if you are taking your classes online, if you're taking your meetings online, make sure that you are taking advantage of the security features that are already in place. Passwords are the most simple things. A lot of it is sort of common sense things. So the more secure you need a meeting, the more secure you need to keep its passwords. Simple things like don't use easy to guess passwords. Even when you're in a meeting, if you are meeting with people that you are unfamiliar with, also beware of links that might be sent via text. There have been proven instances where malicious code can be inserted via link in these teleconferencing platforms. So beware of that. Another major type of exploit that has been used quite a bit during this remote work time is you're probably familiar with phishing or smishing, which is basically phishing via text message, uh, spoofing, and what are called social engineering attacks. And so this is when a bad guy reaches out via usually email or text, posing as somebody else or trying to get you to click on something. So you'll receive an email, maybe it looks like someone you recognize, maybe it doesn't. It'll either contain a link or it'll contain an attachment. 
and the user will open up, you know, unsuspecting the link or attachment, and the attachment can contain malicious code that can breach your systems, or the link might take you to a page that then deploys malicious code. Sometimes these exploits are more intended to get the recipient to do something. So there has been quite an increase in spoofed emails, oftentimes basically spoofing somebody in a position of authority within an organization, contacting usually somebody who's in an accounting or in an assistant type position saying, hey, I need you to wire this money to this account right now. And because we're working remotely, we can't see and lean over you know, stick our head outside of the door and say, hey, did you send this? Lots of times people will act on it without verifying. And so these types of exploits aren't necessarily very technologically sophisticated, but they rely on us not checking essentially. And so they are easy to combat. You essentially need to confirm whatever you're receiving. It's called out of channel. So if you receive an email that says, hey, do this for me, Rather than click reply and reply to what would be the bad actor, pick up the phone, call the person who it's supposedly from, add a phone number that you know to be good, and confirm with them, hey, do you actually want me to wire a million dollars to this account in Scandinavia? Something along those lines. Finally, one of the last things to keep in mind is as we're working remotely, whether you're doing it in the home or if you're working in a more public setting to access Wi-Fi, be careful when you're logging onto public networks, whether it's hotel Wi-Fi, if it's Starbucks, things like that. Public networks, because they are accessed by so many people and you do not have control over how they're secured, you should really be careful when you're in those kind of venues. So if you have to connect, try to use a VPN. If you are doing work while you are connecting to one of these networks, avoid logging into any of your services that touch your sensitive information. So your bank accounts, things along those lines. The risk here is that when you, again, hop on like an open Starbucks Wi-Fi, is that somebody can be watching, that these networks are easy to spoof, and that it's easy to basically sit yourself and watch the traffic that goes by, including the credentials and the business that people are transacting on it. So again, if you do, for some reason, have to access these public networks, use the tools that are out there to try and either encrypt your traffic use multi-factor authentication so that you have one more layer of protection, or ideally just avoid it altogether. In the event that the worst has happened and there is a data breach, what you need to know is what is the plan? So ideally your organization will have some form of basically a phone tree to call. So if something bad happens and you need help, typically internally your first call is going to be IT. If it is something they need to escalate, they will then send it up to your CISO, so your chief information security officer or your CTO, your chief technical officer, who will then likely notify your legal department or your executives. If this is something that can't be remediated internally, oftentimes they'll reach out to consultants, cybersecurity consultants who can help with the breach. Even if the breach is handled internally, Lots of times there will be some sort of assistance, especially if this requires public notice or disclosure that there has been a breach. You'll oftentimes need some form of assistance in the form of communications or PR or occasionally outside counsel. And keep in mind, depending on the type of information that might have been exposed, you may need to make reports to law enforcement or your regulating agencies. 
if it is past a certain number of persons, in most jurisdictions throughout the country, there is a mandatory reporting to the public. I want to say the standard is around a thousand. You know, if you have a thousand persons whose personal information is breached, I think the standard is that you do make public disclosure. But again, this will vary by jurisdiction. If you have contractors that have been affected upstream or downstream of you, it's a good idea to let them know that your systems have been breached also so that they do not necessarily act on bad information from bad actors. When you form your plan or your response, it's important to have internal policies that will help guide the response so that ideally you're not flying blind in the event the worst happens. Ideally, your organization will have some form of incident response plan that will lay out who this chain of communication has to flow to. This might be incorporated into the employee handbook or the employee handbook may lay out roles as far as who is your first call when something bad happens. And ideally, there will be some form of data classification and handling policy that will specify to employees, okay, here's what's protected, here's the level of protection it needs, and here's what you need to do if for some reason it gets out where it's not supposed to be. So when or if the, the worst happens and there is a data breach, there is cybersecurity insurance available now to cover that. It's important to remember if you are in the position of making sure that your organization does have sufficient insurance coverage, that in the past maybe five to 10 years, increasingly general liability insurance policies have excluded cybersecurity events from coverage. So most insurers now are pushing to have distinct cybersecurity policies. What is also useful to know, though, is that a number of insurers have gotten much more sophisticated in the level of support they offer in the event that you have to respond to a breach. A number of them will have essentially panel counsel and panel consultants to assist you through the breach and remediation process and any litigation arising from it, hopefully not. But a number of them also have access to preventative measures when onboarding you into the policy. Okay, so when we're talking about the pandemic environment, it's important to also keep in mind, we talked about protected information. Our higher ed organizations handle both student and employee privacy. So one of the big concerns right now is if there is outbreak on the campus, how do we handle that? How do we prevent it? And what do we do with the information about it? So if you are planning on doing periodic screening, okay, everybody who shows up today is getting their temperature checked. Keep in mind if they're employees, that is treated as sensitive confidential medical information. If they're students, that's going to go into their student records protected by FERPA. If you do have an outbreak and you need to start contact tracing, keep in mind that FERPA provisions do allow for notice to in health and safety emergency situations. That notice should go to the appropriate public authorities. So that would be health departments, possibly police, not the media. But when you do make that notice to your university environment, you still have to be sensitive to the privacy concerns. So if you want to say our one student from Wisconsin came down with COVID, obviously that would allow for identification of the student and probably is not necessary to notifying everyone. So be mindful of personal privacy when you have to make those notifications. We talked a little bit about security considerations, just to reiterate privacy and security when we are in the remote working environment, to keep in mind that we do have tools available that allow basically for remote monitoring of work, that it, just because you can does not necessarily mean you should. Please consult what the privacy restrictions are in your jurisdiction. They will vary quite a bit from state to state. 
And you should also consult what you have disclosed and what employees have agreed to either in their collective bargaining agreements or their employee handbook as far as the extent of monitoring that they have consented to. Also, when you're talking about remote work, keep in mind that you should have in place access control measures to make sure people aren't touching systems and information that they don't necessarily need access to. Okay, and so just quickly, I did want to cover export controls for universities that are research heavy, particularly if they take on work from the DOD or if they do a lot of work that is ultimately utilized in the defense space, you will know essentially if you are subject to export controls. These regulations will be in the text of whatever grants or contracts your researchers take on. So it is very clear if you are subject to them. But if you're not familiar, export controls are there to essentially ensure that weapons do not end up in the hands of people who are not friends of the U.S. And so this comes up in the university context because we do have faculty members, we do have researchers, we do have students that are from all over the world. And so how we, how we share information within our universities, if you are dealing with research on behalf of the Department of Defense, you might need to put in some controls there. Keep in mind that an export is not just packing something up in a box and shipping it to Iran. An export can be talking to somebody who is a foreign national, whether it's in person, whether it's remotely. So just be mindful of how your information is shared. And in a remote working environment, if you are working with export control sensitive information, Keep in mind that whatever virtual platforms you're using, whatever cloud storage platforms are using, if it hasn't been vetted by your IT or your export control departments, please take a look at things like the co-location. And so what that is, is there should be a provision in the terms of use with whatever service that you're using that will say where physically in the world the servers are located that stores this information. So if you have controlled information, you need to know physically where that information is going at all times, whether you're transporting a hard copy of it or whether you're transporting an electronic copy of it. And so I think I've eaten up all my time. So Jose, I'm gonna turn it back to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So Kathleen Hen is going to lead us in a discussion about remote work policies and in some Title IX issues. I know Derek Ishikawa is going to join her at some point during her talk to talk a little bit about the Title IX implementation. So Kathleen, take it away. Thanks so much, Jose. So we're going to start off by talking about remote work issues and particularly having a policy in place. So the recommendation to have a policy is so that you can outline for your employees what your expectations are, who's eligible for remote work, and to address those types of issues. I've separated this into short-term and long-term considerations. Short-term, by what I mean by that, is basically now, dealing with remote work during the pandemic itself. So you want your policy to address things such as who, who's eligible to work remotely, that the um, policies in your employee handbook are applicable just the same if you're working from home or as if you're working in the office, and those include things like intellectual property policies, um, IT policies, particularly you know, safety of confidential information or sensitive information, and as well as things like advice and recommendations to employees on how to set up their workspace at home so that it's safe. Because workers' comp claims can come from someone who is injured while working from home. 
whether or not there's coverage will be very fact specific. But what we did in drafting our policy is we actually reached out to our insurance broker who gave us a list of sort of a safety checklist. And we modified that and included it in our policy to provide recommendations to employees about fairly common sense things, but things like you know, trip and fall hazards in their workspace, making sure that their electrical setup is sufficient so they're not overcrowding an outlet or something like that, that they're setting up their desk and computer in an ergonomic fashion, and then also things like smoke, having smoke detectors nearby. So for longer-term considerations, what we're thinking about there is, you know, how the workplace might change either after the pandemic's over, after we're more likely to be back in the office after a vaccine is readily available and those types of things. In that situation, you might want to consider adding a signed acknowledgement form to your policy so that everyone is indicating that they've read it, they understand it, they'll comply with it. You also might want to put into place a requirement that they, in that acknowledgement or agreement between the employee and the employer, that you list what your remote work site is. One of the concerns has been employees deciding that they can work from home, so home is gonna be New Zealand or home is going to be their beach house. And it can cause payroll issues if you have someone working in another state. And there's a whole host of issues that go along with an employee working remotely outside of the United States if you are a US-based institution. So, for example, our policy prohibits work outside of the U.S. for remote employees. And one thing that I forgot to mention earlier is even if you had a policy in place prior to the pandemic and, you know, basically in a lot of instances your employees being kind of forced to work from home, you might want to take a look at the policy. What we did was add a section called mandated work from home that was similar but a little bit different than what might be considered kind of voluntary work from home or agreed work from home between the employer and the employee. So then one of the issues that I have listed here is a, providing for a stipend for employees. Depending on your where you're located and how employee-friendly your state is, there may be state requirements that you reimburse or provide payment to employees for business expenses. And the basic principle is that you don't want to be passing on or employers should not be able to pass on their business expenses to their employees. So for my organization, we have most of our employees in the state of Illinois and the state of California, both very employee friendly, both have requirements that employees be reimbursed for business expenses. And there may be some differences based on whether the employee is kind of voluntarily working from home, you know, whether where we permit them to work from home versus where we would require them to work from home. And so there are some fact issues there. I would encourage you to talk with your counsel about any of those fact-specific issues. But the things to consider in determining, you know, providing the stipend is whether it's required by state law, how much are you going to pay, and what are you going to do if you're like us and you have employees in more than one state? So the way that we tried to solve this problem was coming up with kind of a flat amount that we thought would cover expenses for employees. And so there's a monthly stipend. It's included in their paycheck. Some institutions have instituted more like an expense report type approach where you have to submit receipts and things for your expenses. We consider that to be rather onerous and also 
the way that our expense report system is done, there's a cost associated with each expense report that is submitted. So we implemented an across-the-board stipend, and that has been in place pretty much since the pandemic started. The last issue related to remote work that I'm going to talk about has to do with accommodations and ADA accommodations. And basically, the pandemic doesn't really change the basic principles of providing accommodations to your employees. You still have to engage in the interactive process with them. You still have to determine if an accommodation request meets the barrier of an undue hardship or not. And the EOC has issued a lot of guidance in this area. So I would suggest that you take a look at their FAQs. They're fairly detailed and do provide a lot of information. And I think one thing that's come out of the pandemic that's not a typical, it's not an accommodation request actually, but it's kind of viewed as an accommodation request, which is where an employee is asking for an accommodation to work from home because someone in their household is high risk for coronavirus complications. And in that situation, that's not actually an ADA requirement. It only requires accommodations for employees who have a a disability that meets the criteria in the law. But the EEOC, interestingly, in its FAQs, did encourage employers to extend flexibility to employees in that situation. I think it's to try to uh, address the spread of the virus, of course, and to try to see if that can be handled. And they do caution employers to think about, you know, if they're going to allow that flexibility for a particular employee, figuring out how they address that for other employees as well. So there isn't any discrimination in how that policy is being applied. The last thing I'll say on um, accommodations is that prior to the pandemic, if an employee requested an accommodation to work remotely, it was fairly easy for the employer to say that that was an unreasonable request, that they needed to be in the office, they needed to be present in meetings, available to communicate, those types of things. The EEOC has pointed out that during the pandemic, if that if an employee is working, you know, performing their work, doing a good job, being able to meet deadlines and those types of things, it will be more difficult to reject that type of accommodation request when we're all in a situation or a majority of us are in a situation where we're working more often from the office than we are from home. So we're gonna move from remote work policies to Title IX issues. And there are a number of different platforms that my clients have used in handling Title IX issues, mostly Zoom and GoToMeeting. And both of those have worked fairly well. Zoom in particular has a lot of settings where you can set up breakout rooms, And so I would encourage you to, if you're doing a remote investigation or particularly a hearing, that you think through those issues ahead of time and test them out as to, you know, who's going to have access to which rooms, who's going to be moderating, where there'll be someone, um, you know, with the waiting room, where they're letting people in and those types of things. Derek Ishikawa, who's going to join me on the next, when I get to the next slide, may have insights on other platforms as well. So if you have a question about a particular platform, please feel free to add that in the Q&A. And if either of us have experience with that, we'd be happy to respond. So when we think about, you know, how to handle these Title IX kind of sensitive issues in a remote environment, I think that one of the keys is really just preparation. You want to make sure that you prepare for your interviews, that the person, whether they're a party or a witness that you're talking to, has a safe place to participate. 
It is recommended that you use a webcam or video conference if you're able to. I think that helps the two individuals, the interviewer, the investigator, and the party or witness being interviewed to connect with each other. And it's important to allow time to establish rapport with the person that you're interviewing. I think, you know, um, one of the Title IX coordinators that I work with a lot who does a lot of these remote investigations and has over the last couple of years usually starts by asking if it's a student and what the program they're enrolled in, how long they've been in the program. Similar questions could be asked of an employee. That just helps to kind of lay the groundwork before you have to get into the substance of, you know, what could be very difficult issues to talk about with someone that you don't know and you may not have met. The same Title IX coordinator that I mentioned often starts her interviews like this by saying to the party in particular, you know, I've read the information that you've submitted. I've reviewed the relevant documents, if there are any. I would like to hear you explain what's happened in your own words. And in her experience, that helps the, the dialogue to be a little bit more like a narrative than, an, than a straight interview. So the person starts talking, giving her background about what happened, and then she politely interrupts with questions throughout so that it's really more of a conversation than it is like an interview. Another thing that she does to help throughout this process is, you know, what you might consider kind of a high-touch interaction with the, with the parties where they're getting frequent updates about what the next steps are, how the process works. They're given lots of opportunities to contact the coordinator or deputy or whoever's conducting the investigation so that you make sure that you're accessible just to try to do things to put the person at ease. In terms of recording interviews, there's a lot of different opinions on this. I've attended a number of webinars over the years where speakers have different positions. And I think it's really important for you to just to consider what's appropriate at your organization. Think about the pros and cons. Some people think that you know a recording is gonna intimidate someone and they may not be as forthright or they may not be comfortable being recorded. Others feel like it's crucial to record because it helps them with their note taking and then they can reference the recording going forward. So it really is up to you to determine what is appropriate, what makes the most sense. And remember, if you're in a two-party state, you need to make sure that the other party is consenting before you record. And the last thing on this Title IX slide deals with timing. So we used to have, under the Obama administration's guidance, you know, 60 days to complete an investigation with documented reasons for delay. Then the Trump administration came in, took back some of that guidance, opened up a little bit of flexibility of time. And then with the new Title IX regulations, there are actually time periods set forth in the law that, you know, there's 10 days notice before a hearing, there's 10 days that the parties have to view the investigation report. So my clients have extended the time in their policies to 90 business days from 60 business days. They, they handle the matter as quickly as they reasonably can, but that gives us some flexibility due to those built-in requirements under the new regulations. So the last thing that I'll talk about in terms of Title IX, and then I'll turn it over to Derek, has to do with advisors. And I think that there are different approaches to meeting this requirement. Some of my clients and some institutions have used faculty or staff who are interested, who volunteer. Others may consider themselves being voluntold, maybe by a supervisor. Um, we've also had some institutions use alums 
particularly a law school that I represent, the two things I think that are key for your advisors are one, make sure that they're provided training both on kind of what their role is in general and what your specific policy provides. And also, I think it's important that the those that are serving in a Title IX advisor role are paid for their time, whether that's as part of their employment or if they're not an employee, that they're being paid for their time. I think that that shows how important we think this is. And with that, I'll turn it over to Derek. Thanks, Kathy. So most institutions by now have adopted new policies in response to the final rule promulgated by the Office of Civil Rights Department of Education. And there's a lot in there, far beyond what we can cover, obviously, in the, the span of this webinar. And frankly, most of the most institutions have already, you know, it's been several months since the effective date came around. So what I'm going to talk about is the OCR blog and the uh, Office of Civil Rights. They've been posting blogs intermittently over the past year, really, to provide additional clarification on some points in the notice of proposed rulemaking that, that preceded the final rule, and then clarifying some points raised in the final rule. I want to highlight just a few of the more recent OCR blog posts. This one was a big one, the first one. On, on August 5th, uh, shortly before the effective date, uh, the Office of Civil Rights clarified what was already clear in the, in the final rule, that there was going to be no retroactive enforcement of the final rule, which means any incident that occurred prior to the effective date of August 14th could proceed under your, your institution's old rules. And I think that this has provided a lot of relief for a lot of institutions because Having to switch over so quickly, I think, caused a lot of, you know, heartache and, and headache for a lot of institutions, especially given all the COVID-related impacts. So that's, that's one issue. Of course, that raises a number of questions. How long does this go on? And so um, there's no statute of limitations on Title IX claims, at least internally at most places. And so the issue of how long you use those old rules, I think, is going to be a question both for institutions, but also it's going to be, I expect that it will be litigated in the courts because the Office of Civil Rights has put down, thrown down the gauntlet saying this is what is a due process, what's a fair procedure for the parties. How long that, you know, the argument that these rules are not retroactive will stand, I think is, is going to be tested sorely over the, the coming months and years. The next issue is decision makers. Now, the Office of Civil Rights have, has clarified that you can have different folks at, at your institution, both internally and externally, participating in the decision-making process. So you can have a factual finder, and then you can have somebody who's doing the disciplinary process. And that's fine. The only issue really is you have to bring those two decisions in a single written piece. So it's, it's, you know, you can have different people contributing to this process. And in fact, I've, I've done that as a hearing officer. I've, I've reached my factual findings of responsibility, and then I've handed it off to an internal person for calibration on the sanctions to make sure that sanctions are being equitably attributed. The most recent blog post was sexual harassment. There's been a lot of um, discussion over how the final rule defines sexual harassment. And I think for purposes of our, our call today, it's really the Office of Civil Rights has made it clear that they view this as a major step forward, having the definitions that really provide clear guidance on the interactions between Cleary definitions and sexual harassment. Now, the big takeaways are that 
Previously, OTCR analyzed whether the conduct was sufficiently severe and pervasive to be covered under Title IX, and now OCR is saying that they're no longer evaluating whether sexual misconduct meets the severe or pervasive threshold before Title IX protections are triggered. Each form of the articulated aspects of sexual harassment are uh, constitute a per se incident of sexual harassment. So for more information to spend time with the blog posts, go to the, just Google it, the OCR blog, Department of Education. It's worthwhile because there's some training materials on there as well. It's worth it to spend a little bit of time there to get caught up on, on the guidance that they're providing. Thanks, Derek. Derek, I know that you've now have several, a miscellaneous uh, group of uh, topics to talk about. It's like everything else that's happened uh, over the last few months with the gender-based scholarships, the the training component that we're getting, the guidance that we're getting, or the prohibition in terms of certain kinds of training. So I know you've got a number of issues to go. So Derek, take it away. All right. Thanks, Jose. So again, I I do have a little bit of a survey approach to the the remaining slides that I have, but um, there are a lot of interesting sort of ongoing updates. Not all of them are COVID related, but this one is continues to be one that, that is interesting. And these are gender-based scholarships. And for those institutions who haven't noticed, the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, they've opened dozens of investigations into sex-specific scholarships. And this is really focused on allegations raised by largely by third-party organizations such as SAVE that are focused on scholarships that are available exclusively to women or that are granting preference to female students. And so I'm gonna not discuss single sex campus programs because that's sort of beyond what we have time to do today, but that has also been a big source of complaints and interest from the Office of Civil Rights. So as of October 30th, 2020, the OCR website showed that the agency had a total of 127 open investigations into single sex scholarships. And so this really shows that, you know, it has become a well-oiled machine, to so to speak, for these outside organizations to send letters to institutions alleging that based on a public a review of the publicly available information about scholarships for an institution, that the institution is violating Title IX based on the availability of women-only scholarships or women-preferential scholarships. And the form of these letters has often come in the form of requests for information, so they, they ask institutions to provide additional information why the institution is not violating Title IX by, by providing either links to outside organizations that provide female uh, preferential scholarships or female-only scholarships, or by managing those in-house. And I think institutions have been managing this in a bunch of different ways. Some have chosen to ignore the complaints Others have provided, you know, clarification in response letters. Others, you know, provide a substantive response asserting why their programs are compliant with the law. One of the ways in which organizations have responded is to say, you know, we had an issue with discrimination on campus, uh, discrimination against women on campus, and so this scholarship is in response to that issue. A lot of these scholarships, as, as institutions are familiar, arose out of women-only colleges that maybe joined a larger institution or women-only scholarships back when gender equity at colleges and universities was more of an issue. 
But I think that the letters are having a little bit more traction with this OCR because the demographics on campuses are very different than they were at the time that many of these scholarships were instituted. So this is all to say that this issue is not going away. I would anticipate that, you know, maybe the Biden administration will take a different approach to receipt of some scholarships. But the, the idea that these are just going to go away, I think, during the during a Biden administration, I think is unlikely because, you know, there there is going to be additional pressure for uh, institutions to document what they've done and why they're doing it. So if you do get one of these letters, there are some materials out there that, that can help you. But I think it, it is worthwhile to go back and look at why you're doing what you're doing and, and to revisit potentially opening up some of these scholarships on a broader basis. Okay, I gotta quickly go through the standardized test requirements. So as most institutions have, have observed, the SAT and ACT, the availability of those, those tests has, has gone down significantly due to the, the impacts of COVID. Multiple tests were canceled or postponed, and then the availability of the re remaining slots at certain test centers has gone down because of the need for social distancing. So in response to this, a number of institutions have, have adopted test optional uh, admission policies or have actually declined to use tests, so they're test-blind institutions. And one of the things that is, is worth noting is that in California, the University of California was ordered to actually to stop using the SAT and ACT in its admission programs because of the, the impact that test optional programs had on, on uh, students with disabilities. This is, I think, uh, worthy of mentioning because what happened in California in this case I don't see any reason why it would be limited to California only. The, the ADA is, is obviously a federal law, and I think that there could be traction for this. So institutions should take a look at that case um, when they're considering their admissions policies on a going forward basis. All right, I'm going to quickly go through the, the president's executive order. So uh, President Trump on September 22nd, he issued an executive order curbing the use of types of diversity and equity training. And a lot of this was focused on critical race theory, unconscious bias. The, the relevant colored entities are recipients of federal grants, contractors and subcontractors, and federal agencies and armed services, including ROTC, which is probably something to, to pay attention to on, on certain campuses. The prohibited topics are divisive concepts, race and sex stereotyping, race and sex scapegoating. Obviously, when we came up with this topic, it was before the election. But I think that one thing to note is that this is very likely to go away in the Biden administration. I think the idea that Biden administration would not re reverse this executive order, I think, is highly unlikely. I think it's more likely that the Biden administration would follow longstanding requirements and uh, guidance on diversity training and it trends towards inclusivity and, and working on unconscious bias. So I think, you know, for for because of the election, this is less of a concern. Derek, you made the point and, and, and for Kathy, too, you made the point that under a Biden administration, the race and sex stereotyping guidance is probably going to go away. And I think that's that's absolutely true. What's your sense on the Title IX issue? Again, there's a, there's a regulation here as opposed to an executive order. But give us a sense of what you think is likely to be what happens with regard to Title IX 
and the, the, the rule the rules of procedures and and what are you tell, telling clients about that that issue and, and, and Kathy you can also jump in after Derek has a chance yeah I'll, I'll just mention briefly I think Kathy has a good experience working with her clients on this I will say uh, a lot of the final rule elements have already been in place in many jurisdictions throughout the country. So in California, for where I practice, uh, I've been advising clients on uh, requirements for indirect cross-examination for years. And mm. so those rules and similar rules grounded in due process and fair hearings have been instituted in, by courts in other jurisdictions over the course of the last several years. So some of the aspects of the final rule, even if that it were to be rescinded are going to be with us for the, the long term because uh, they're court instituted. Kathy, anything you want to add on that? Sure. Thanks, Derek. So I think one thing to also keep in mind is, you know, this was such a big change in a lot of ways, particularly for organizations that are not in areas where cross-examination was required that you don't want to have kind of a seesaw approach where we put this whole new policy in, you've been training your community on it, you've been advising people on how it's going to apply, and then you want to just completely go back to the way it was before. I think that that I've been advising clients to sort of stay the course right now, comply with the regulations that went in, and went in effect in August, and also because I've heard a lot of differing opinions. Uh, I think Darren said before that, you know, the Biden administration hadn't really shown their cards. I think that's true in this area. There's been a lot of speculation about how they might change things moving forward. But the timing of that and what will be changed coupled with the state law requirements that are in effect for many institutions currently, I would consider a more cautious and kind of slower approach to making any kind of changes. A uh, separate issue, uh, Sam, just wanted to get your uh, impression about a couple of things. Kathy mentioned uh, when she was talking about the remote employment policies, talked about people working outside the United States remotely. It seems to me that that's something that would certainly trigger at least thinking about the export control uh, issue. If someone were to leave the country and work in another country, that probably raises an issue. And I, I want to get your impression on that. And then secondly, I've got a second question for you, and that is, in terms of, I mean, all these platforms that are now available, a lot of them have actually been created uh, recently, changes to platforms. Any tips on how we, how an institution might be able to gauge the security that a platform brings? What, what sorts of things should people be looking at? So again, two things. One, if you could just say a little bit something about the export control uh, issue in terms of people working outside the United States. And then secondly, just in terms of that security of uh, platforms. So as far as the um, export control issues go, being located outside of the United States, what you have to be careful of when you're remote working is whether directing the traffic um, into that country might trigger an export. The tricky thing about the export controls are that there are multiple lists covered by multiple agencies. And so what you're going to have to check is which lists and which list your subject information is covered by. And so that'll determine where in the world you're prevented from sending things. It can be by individual, it can be by organization. So it, it is going to depend to some extent. Um, as far as the question on vetting platforms for their security, a lot of it is going to be reading the terms of use and checking out the security features that they have available. 
but also matching it to what your security needs are. So if this is going to be just a platform that you're using for maybe say like a standard classroom presentation where, you know, if you're having this in person, it wouldn't really matter if somebody off the street wandered in and listened to it. You're going to need a different level of security than if you were having discussions about, say, export controlled items where you do need to very strictly regulate who has access to the information. And so when you are vetting security, obviously get the assistance of your organization's IT involved, but also make sure that you know what your security requirements are and have some idea of what sort of safeguards you're gonna to wanna to have in place. So things like ability to password protect, things like the ability to select the location of the servers that will be storing data, whether or not there are features like multi-factor authentication to basically verify that the persons who are logging in are who they say they are, are some of the most useful ones. And in general, for any platform, any tool that you use, make sure that you, one of the simplest things that you can do to improve your security is to just keep them updated. So don't ignore those pop-up messages that say, please update me now. And thank you for that. You know, one thing I've heard around this whole issue of uh, security is something that I think a lot of schools have done, but maybe not everyone has done, which is really do a thorough inventory of all the various platforms, apps that are being used throughout the institution so that you really have an understanding of what your vulnerabilities might be. Um, make sure that you're reviewing those agreements. Uh, so doing an inventory of all the ways in which people get into your, um, your computer system, essentially, I think is really, really important. Well, I appreciate everyone's uh, participation. I think uh, hopefully people have found this helpful. We've touched on a, num a number of uh, different issues, obviously some that have been uh, exacerbated by the pandemic, some that were completely unrelated to the pandemic, but nonetheless arose during the time of the pandemic and institutions of higher ed have had to e essentially adjust to these various changes in law. So again, thank you very much for participating. Peter, I think you've got a few things to, um, to close us up. Thanks, Jose, and to our panel of experts for sharing their valuable knowledge on how changes in e-learning will dramatically impact higher education. For our listeners who would like to connect with any of our panelists or any of the lawyers from around the world, please search for them on the ELA website. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, click on the drop-down box. There you can find and receive updates to important information, download white papers, access on-demand content, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook, all available at ela.law. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.